Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7 through 7 is our text this morning. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll be focused this morning on verses 5 and 6. This is the word of the Lord. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to this passage that you will convict us, that you will help us, that you will train us in righteousness, that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So another another time in this passage, and I'll be on verse 7 next week as well, so uh, three sermons on on these seven verses, but they're very important. Uh, We laid the groundwork for this passage last Sunday. Uh, Just a bit of review before we take uh, this passage back up. Wives here uh, are exhorted to submit to their own husbands, whether those husbands are believing or unbelieving. In in the particular situation of an unbelieving husband, the scripture teaches wives that their chaste and respectful behavior will be powerful. It will have power. It will be useful toward the conversion of their husband. And we went back to uh, think through the reasons God would command women to submit to their husbands, why there would be that kind of hierarchy laid down in Scripture. And it came down to a few things. In 1 Timothy 2, Scripture teaches us that Adam was created first, then Eve. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Eve was made for the man, not the man for Eve, is what Scripture says. And then second, 1 Timothy 2 also pointed out that it was Eve, not Adam, who was deceived and fell into transgression. And so that forms the basis, those events of many, many uh, millennia ago form the events that... Uh, inform us now. Uh, this I argued with the help of Werner Neuer and Genesis 3 6, um, where, the, where the woman gazes longingly at the forbidden fruit 
um, seeing that it's wise to make, uh, that it's powerful to make or wise, and then eats of the forbidden fruit, that shows a particular susceptibility of women to temptation. So on that basis, the relative strength of man is protective to the weakness, the relative weakness of the woman. That weakness is mentioned in verse 7 of our passage. We'll speak more about that next week. For now, though, let's focus on verses 5 and 6. So after the Holy Spirit exhorts wives to submit to their own husbands, even unbelieving husbands who are opposed to the very word of God, he then commends what is precious in the sight of God, a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what's precious in the sight of God. Again, we talked about that last time and how that is not exactly our culture's expectation for femininity, right? We prefer our women to be brash and loud. We are not bothered, in fact, when they fight in MMA octagons and enter into the Army Rangers training program and advocate for the slaughter of their own children in their womb. Right, contrary to what you've been taught by today's talking heads and your college professors, femininity, according to God's word, is fully feminine and it's precious when it's marked by the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. The beauty of femininity is, is fully expressed in that quality. Right? Whereas the man is called to protect and provide using his strength and carefully redeemed violence, right, to shield the weak, the woman is called to recede and to nurture and to be gentle, to ease suffering and to be unargumentative, to leave thoughts unspoken, to show deference. I mean, all of that makes us sort of squirm when I say it. I feel it. That, dear sisters, is a high calling. And just like men today have to detox from our culture's relentless drive to make men effeminate, so women have to detox from the culture's relentless drive to make women brash. And that's what this scripture should do for us. In both cases, and this is important, that work is scary. That work is fearful. It's terribly fearful work. Men have been so steeped, particularly if they are public educated and college educated in a culture that hates masculinity, that they require basic teaching from scripture on God's calling for men, right? For example, when Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, he was commanded to cultivate and keep it. That very teaching has huge implications for the work that men are to give themselves to. They're to rule over and protect all that's entrusted to them. Right? That doctrine has worked it out in their lives then in a thousand different ways. Likewise, when Eve was made for Adam, she had specific tasks assigned to her. She was a companion to a man who was lonely. Right? She, was, she was called and given to him as a helpmate. Right? And she was the mother of all the living. That's what Eve's name means. Right? Her orientation 
unlike Adam's, which was out of the garden, out into the garden, was inward toward the man, his work, and his children. And so that doctrine is worked out in the lives of women, or should be in a thousand different ways. But given what we've been taught by our egalitarian and God-hating culture, it induces fear in both men and women when Scripture comes to these topics and we're exhorted by pastors on them. The first fear that comes up in that situation is this. To live biblically is to be at odds with our culture. It's to be at odds with our co-workers. It's to be at odds with our own families, our extended families. Right? To live biblically is despised, and no one likes being despised. To even show the least bit of deference, such as saying, Wives, I, you know, if you were to say this to a friend, I need to talk this over with my husband before I make a decision is seen as mind-numbingly Neanderthalic, if I can make that into an adjective. Right? And, I, and I, I haven't mentioned this. There is the basic fear we all have in submitting to any authority. It's a fearful thing to submit to authority. It's hard because authority can be abused. And there are bad leaders and bad rulers and bad husbands and bad pastors. Unfortunately, all authority is, today though, all authority is seen as oppressive and abusive, right? And that's why people hate police officers who only live and work to keep you safe, right? Authority, we must understand, is God's fatherhood imprinted on the world. And yet every authority outside of God's, which is perfect, can misuse his authority. When authority is misused, it becomes not a means of cultivating and keeping, rather it becomes a means of destroying and hurting. And that fear, that in particular, the fear women have in submitting to their husbands is addressed in verse, verses 5 and 6. So let's work through this passage. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So what adornment is it talking about? The adornment that the apostle is referring to here is the spiritual adorning of a gentle and quiet spirit. Those holy women clothed themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. And he's saying that holy women in times past, the kind of women who hoped in God, adorned themselves with this kind of spirit that is precious in the sight of God, that gentle and quiet spirit. They were kind, the kind of women who instead of hoping in money or hoping in, in a perfect relationship or hoping in upward mobility or hoping in their ability to put another woman in a chokehold or, or you know, hoping in their hairstyle and designer clothes, they were the kind of women that hoped in God. Not in all those other things. Their first concern was to live for God, and living for God means delighting in his commandments and putting on his yoke, which is never burdensome. The woman who hopes in God is able, as the verse goes on, to be submissive to their own husbands. The woman who puts her hope in anything else 
I guarantee you she will be a woman who sees no reason or no good reason to submit to her husband, no matter how intelligent, how good-looking, how capable uh, her husband may be. Without a hope in God, that woman will try to grab her future by the throat and force that future to conform to what she thinks will make her happy. And that will likely mean that her husband... Right? Rather than being able to lead her, her husband will be her lapdog. He, in order to keep the peace, will never insist on his will, but will live in such a way where he is constantly trying to anticipate just exactly what's going to make his wife happy. That's not leadership. And that's not godly femininity either. Right? The woman who has fixed her hope on God, though, who understands the higher responsibility and the higher joy of obeying her creator, is able to then submit to her husband. She does so and and is able to do so because she loves God. She loves her Savior. And so having a Savior, she can do just about anything. So women, do you hope in God? If so, that will lead you to a certain delight in the commands of God. If so, that will, will allow you not to clamor after the world's aspirations for you and for your femininity. If you hope in God, that hope will allow you to endure the scorn of your friends. That hope in God will, that hope will fill you with all the faith necessary to submit to your husband and before that to submit to your father and And if without that, to the elders of the church that God has blessed you with. Now the example of this kind of godliness and hope given by the Apostle Peter is the wife of the patriarch Abraham. The example given is Sarah. Peter writes, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, how'd he do? Right? Calling him Lord. When did Sarah ever call Abraham Lord? Well, Genesis 18:12, right in the midst of the passage where the three men, God himself, we understand, reveals that in a year's time she would be with child, even though she was 89 years old at that point. And the passage reads, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? It's one of those great statements in scripture. Um, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Abraham's, what, 10 years older than, than Sarah at this point? So immediately following that statement, you remember what the Lord says. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And then it says, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, God said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> oh. There's a lot that we could say, you know, my, my thoughts are having thoughts at this point on that passage, but there's a lot that we could say about that passage. But right there in the middle of it, she refers to Abraham as my Lord. Right? It's, it's almost impossible for us to read that 
as anything but sarcasm. How could a wife call, let alone think of her husband as her Lord? And the reason we read it sarcastically is because we do not have a thought in our 21st century brains that allows us to accept happily the office and authority of somebody else. Right? We simply do not think it's reasonable that anybody has any authority over us. So the only way we would ever refer to anybody with that kind of word is if we either are in trouble and they have the power to punish us, or if we're being sarcastic. My Lord. We'll leave... um, You know, what's going to happen is we'll leave this sermon and our wives will bat their eyes at us and joke about this. Yes, my Lord. Right? That's what they'll do because they're feeling the tension. Right? They're feeling the tension of this text. How can I serve you, my Lord? And the truth of this lesson and the exhortation will be lost at that point. Right, Sarah called her husband Abraham Lord. Another way we get around this passage is to be prejudicial against the past. Right, People back in Adam's day, well, they were unenlightened, the stupidly patriarchal, just a product of their culture as we're a product of our own. We moderns think that history is a grand arch toward um, the better, toward... Uh, the end of prejudice and problems. And, and I'm not talking about Christians thinking this. At least they have a reason for thinking that from the scriptures. I'm talking about secularists who think that education is the means that will eradicate the ignorance of, you know, the vestiges of ignorance from the past from us. Today we think we would never, never, never enslave people buying them from foreign lands and transporting them, you know, in disease-infested ships and treating them like property. And yet, we do like to dismember babies in the womb. And then traffic in their detached body parts. That's enlightenment. We say we would never eradicate a generation of Jews, right? Yet we have worldwide killed enough babies to stack their bodies higher than Mount Everest. It may even be into the billions. So we're so historically prideful, so we dismiss Sarah's my Lord as vestiges of a bad, bad, bad time in, in the history of mad, mankind, right? That's foolish and ignorant, we say. But when Sarah says, my Lord, she's hoping in God. She's hoping in God. She, when Sarah says, my Lord, she's putting her trust in God who knows what is good and knows what is better. Right When Sarah says, my Lord, she's fighting against those fears that would tempt her to set her own course. Fears that would put her on the path of repudiating her God-given sex and throwing off the protection of her husband's authority. 
The apostle goes on, he says, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her daughters if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Notice that transition in the text. Sarah is given as an example of godliness, of the spiritual adornment of a gentle and quiet spirit, of a woman that defers to her husband's authority. And then Peter directly addresses those reading his epistle, and you, the daughters of Sarah. Right? Why is that not the name of our women's ministry right? in the, in the church? Although Titus 2 women has the same thrust, right? Um, do you want to be a daughter of, of Sarah? It's, it's interesting, that kind of language, isn't it? We honor somebody when we, we say that we are like a son or like a daughter uh, to that person. It means we exhibit certain characteristics that mark that man or that woman. Or at the very least, we aspire to be like that person, there's, there's a striking example of this in the Gospels. In John 8, they answered and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Note that Jesus says of these particular Jews that they were sons, not of God, but of the devil. And that means that they want to do the desires of their father, right? So when the apostle calls women to be daughters of Sarah, he's commending her example. He's asking you to, to hone your desires to that example, Do you even want to be a daughter of Sarah? The woman who regularly referred to her husband as my Lord. Who do you desire to imitate? Are are you a daughter of Margaret Sanger? Are you a daughter of Hillary Clinton? Do you want to be known as a daughter of... Amy Schumer, right? Are you a daughter of of Rhonda Rousey? Are you a daughter of Miley Cyrus? Are you a daughter of Angela Merkel? Or are you a daughter of Sarah, wife of Abraham? A woman who, yes, Her faults are written large in scripture, but a woman who respected her husband, even calling him Lord, right? If you want to be unique today, if you want to remove yourself from any kind of hipster conformity, right? If you want to be a zebra in the midst of ponies, work to be a daughter of of Sarah. 
work to be a daughter of Sarah. Our text says, notice, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Right? There are two kinds of fear that I believe frighten women from obeying scriptures, teaching in regard to wives submitting to their husbands. And keep in mind that this is not the only place in scripture where this is commanded. Um, you can go to 1 Corinthians 7, you can go to Ephesians 5, you can go to Colossians chapter 3. Or, you know, I believe that, that the, the fear that comes up is first of all being scared to be at so at just to be so at odds with our culture's ideals for marriage. It's so at odds with everything we've seen on sitcoms. It's so at odds with everything that's taught to us when um, it, you know when you go to birthing classes at the local hospital. It's so against everything. Every. Everywhere we're taught about how wives should relate to husbands. But do I have to make an argument that our culture is headed toward the complete destruction of marriage? Do I really have to make any argument there? Uh, No longer do we understand marriage as as it has always been understood as a a God-given male-female structure in which the state has a compelling interest for the good of the children raised in that environment. Right? Did you know right now and over the past decade, France, yes, France, has had huge demonstrations regarding the fact that children should have both a father and a mother. They've filled Paris with people on that topic. Right? They hold signs saying, un papa et un maman pour tous les enfants. Right? One mom, one dad for every child, for every baby. And I see no demonstrations like that in our nation, right? We've discarded marriage. It's been redefined to be meaningless. Far fewer people marry today than even a decade ago, right? Our society is so far down the rabbit trail that when Scripture's teaching comes crashing into that context, it seems more than just strange, it seems wicked, right? Wives submit to your husbands. So again, you can be the daughter of Margaret Sanger, or you can be the daughter of Sarah. You can, be, you can allow your college pref- professors to so stir you up in a hatred of Scripture's teaching that you are fearful to even mention that you go to church on Sunday mornings. Or you can just yield to Scripture's teaching. I think, I think that this is the reason so many impressionable young ladies reject the faith. Right? They're afraid of what the Bible teaches. And they've been made to fear because their friends, the movies they watch, the novels they read, the classes they attend, etc., etc., give them a different message. They don't have to face any backlash. They don't have to face any fears if they just embrace gay marriage, right? Cuddle up to the past five decades of feminism and continue to call the shots with their boyfriend and their husband. 
But as soon as they contemplate Scripture's direction, fear creeps in. I'll be seen as a doormat. I'll be seen as stupid. I'll be seen as a fool. Well, here's the issue with that. If you haven't come to terms with that as a Christian already, I don't know what to tell you. Right? You are seen as stupid. You are seen as foolish because you think that God exists. You're seen as stupid and foolish because you think that God made everything from nothing. You're seen as stupid and foolish because you believe that a man named Jesus rose from the dead, right, and will come again and judge all the living and the dead. People think you're stupid, okay? I hate to break it to you, but people already think you're stupid. Followers of Christ have always been regarded as fools, right? The Apostle John told the churches, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. There is no way for Christians to avoid being despised for what they believe. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? And the apostles, those rock stars, right? Had it good. They had it so good, didn't they? To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So it's always been uncool to be a Christian. This is the common experience of the church. It's one of the reasons the Apostle Peter is writing his letter. The the persecuted church is always tempted to leave their first love because of fear. Fear. So if you hate what scripture says about husbands and wives, that... That may be because you are fearful of what will happen if people find out about what you believe and what you are required to believe. The moment you professed faith, that fear should have died in you or begun dying in you. The moment you professed faith in a resurrected man, that fear should have died in you. Because the moment you professed faith, you embraced the foolishness of God and rejected the wisdom of the world. It's that radical. Right? The other kind of fear is that wives have in regards to submitting to a man is this, and it's submitting to a particular man who has proven himself unworthy of leadership, which from time to time is every man. Right? There is not a husband alive, there is not a man alive who does not fail in his calling to lead his wife, to cultivate and keep his garden. He is a sinner who sins, but that does not mean he does not have God-given authority. 
right? And when God calls a woman to submit to a sinner, it is rightfully a very fearful thing. It may be and is probably likely that that you are smarter than your husband. It may be that you are way more compassionate than your husband. It may be that you are way more articulate than your husband. It may be that you would be a much better pastor, elder, or deacon than your husband. Right? It may be that you have far more common sense than your husband. Maybe that you have, um, and here's a big one, it may be that you have far more earning potential than your husband. And so it fills you with all kinds of fear when you have to submit to that numbskull. It's much easier to explain away Scripture's commands than it is to show deference to someone so inferior to yourself. Right? It's much easier to change the game instead of fighting against the fear of having to submit to a sinner. And so I think fear keeps some women even from marrying. I think this kind of fear is the reason marriages become so combative. Right? One day your husband comes home and he says to you, We need to spank our children. And you need to be faithful to spank our children when I'm not around. Fear in that woman's heart creeps in, right? And, and when we fear, we get self-protective, right? One day, your husband come, comes home and he says, we need to cut off our relationship with so-and-so. It's not contributing to our godliness. Fill in your mother-in-law's name in there. It's a joke. It's a joke. But it's often true. But right at that moment, fear creeps into that woman's heart. Right? Or you need to stop being swayed by your mother's opinions. I'm your husband. And God wants you to submit to me, not to her. Fear creeps in. Right? He's... he's, He's so often wrong and his decisions are so extreme. He's so reactionary. He's so thoughtless. Is he, is he really considering all my feelings in this? All of those kinds of thoughts are fears, right? And, and they're born of the fact that your husband has authority but remains often very short-sighted, less than thoughtful, and sometimes just completely obtuse. So wives, the only thing you can do in obeying this command is to set your hope in God. Set your hope in God. Right? Trust him to work. Trust him to work even by faith. Trust him to work even though your, your husband is fallible. It is your calling to be a daughter of Sarah who obeyed her husband even calling him Lord as a sign of respect. So let me end here. G.K. Chesterton said a lot of pithy things that, that make you think. Love his writing. One of the best things he said was what follows. He said this in a book called The Thing. He talks about fences, right? 
In the matter of reforming things as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate erected across a road. Right? So we're considering fences and gates. And there's one up in front of us across the road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you come back and tell me what you do see the use, how you do see the use of it, then I may allow you to destroy it. Right? Our society, our feminists, have been tearing down fences. Right? One fence they've torn down quite a while ago is the hierarchy we see laid out for us in marriage from Scripture. The man was cast out of his position as the head of the household. Only trouble has followed from the destruction of that fence, right? The whole, <clears throat> the whole idea of husbands leading their wives has been dismissed as a fence that needed to be torn down as fast as it could be torn down. But it's the will of God. And as such, it, must, it, 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 might, it might just be the thing that leads to good marriages, in fact, we know that to be the case, right? So let's embrace Scripture's teaching, and not just in theory, but in practice, and see if it leads to health and strength, right? It will lead to health and strength, even, even if it fills you with fear and seems so archaic, so old-fashioned, so passe. Right? It's the will of God. Amen?